Werner von Braun, Aretha Franklin, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Eleanor Ostrom, Steve Jobs, Luciano Pavarotti, and Alan Rickman. All undoubtedly great titans of their 20th century fields in aeronautics, music, acting, economics, technology, and law. But you, our dear listener, are probably asking, what the hell does this group of people have in common? And how does it relate to a podcast about oncology? I'm sure Josh is asking exactly the same question right now. Well, the common thread is that they all met their untimely end at the hands of the subject of today's episode and one of oncology's great unconquered Everests, metastatic pancreatic cancer. Josh, it's going to be a bit of a depressing episode today, unfortunately, because metastatic pancreatic cancer is very, very grim reading. I agree, Mikey, and it hasn't really... Look, there have been some advances in the past decade, but not a huge amount and not enough that we would like to see in such an aggressive and difficult-to-treat malignancy. Before I do, well, I let you talk again, I think we have to mention the big elephant in the room. You forgot to mention Patrick Swayze. You know, dirty dancing, his um, his feet knew no bounds, this man. He was just brilliant actor, brilliant uh, dancer, and I uh, would really recommend if anyone finishes this podcast to go and watch Dirty Dancing after it, because it's a great watch. Yes, maybe I should have uh, included Patrick Swayze in that list, and I apologise for the egregious oversight. I'll forgive you just this once. So, we'll start as we always do on this show with a little bit of background information. Pancreatic cancer, I think it is fair to say, is one of those cancers that is less common, but definitely, as we intimated before, punches well above its weight in terms of mortality and morbidity. Uh, In Australia, so these are Australian figures, uh, there are estimated to be about 4,500 new cases of pancreatic cancer in the year 2022, which accounts for about 2.8% of total cancer diagnoses. Now, a note on that percentage does include uh, lymphomas and other hematological malignancies that we normally wouldn't group together, but these are uh, nationwide uh, figures that encompass cancer as an entity. By contrast, there are going there are estimated to be about three and a half thousand deaths from pancreatic cancer in twenty twenty two, and this accounts for a little over seven percent of total cancer deaths, which is third amongst all types of cancer. So while it's not the most common cancer, by any stretch of the imagination, it still is a major cause of cancer death. And at least part of this equation is that only 15 to 20% of cases are curable or resectable at the time of diagnosis. And anyone who's picked up an anatomy textbook knows that the area in which the pancreas sits is very busy anatomically. So it doesn't take very much for the uh, tumour to be encasing, surrounding or uh, too intimately associated with critical structures such as vasculature for it to be safe to resect. So even though the cancer might not have metastasized at the time of diagnosis, the uh, incidence of locally advanced unresectable cancer is still very high. The five-year survival figures, and these are figures from 2014 to 2018, is about 12%, which is one of the lowest survival rates of any cancer. And 
as Josh said at the start, this is one of those cancers that has been unfortunately left behind, not through any lack of effort, but just through a complex mechanism of resistance that we're still unraveling. Uh, But it has very much been left behind by the push to immunotherapy and targeted therapy. There are very few targetable mutations that are known to be efficacious in the treatment of pancreatic cancer. The most important one is probably BRCA. And there was, we won't go into it today, but there was a trial, the POLO trial of Olaparib in metastatic pancreatic cancer that did show a benefit. But this is a very small percentage of patients. There's also the question of uh, deficiencies in mismatch repair, which is a, a, a very, very significant part of the diagnosis of cancers such as colorectal cancer, gastric cancer, and gynecological malignancies as well, because it opens the door for uh, immunotherapy to be efficacious. But unfortunately, with pancreatic cancer, less than 2% of cases are uh, mismatch repair deficient or MSI high, and there is still very little evidence of benefit in uh, of immunotherapy, even in the patients who are uh, mismatch repair deficient. So, The cupboard is very empty, Josh, and what we're going to talk about today, the two articles we're going to talk about today, really represent the two best treatments, but it really is the best of a bad lot. It most definitely is, Michael. In saying that, when I was doing my little digging of reading, back in 2011, the five-year overall survival rate was 5%. So, Maybe it's not a lot, but it is double what we previously had. So in a decade, we've doubled our overall survival, but you know, at twelve percent survival rate at five years is shocking in comparison to a ninety-two percent breast cancer overall survival rate of five years. And the talk I'm going to give today is on a New England Journal of Medicine publication way back when. This one's from two thousand and eleven, May the twelfth to be exactly. And this is titled Forfirinox versus Gemcitabine for Metastatic Pancreatic Cancer. So let's let's take the journey back, Mikey. This is before immunotherapy, before olaparib, before mainstream molecular testing or targeted therapy where chemotherapy ruled all. Gosh, I, I am engrossed in your word painting there, Josh. I'm in the time machine and I'm ready to go. Thank you. We had electricity though, so that's always a good start. And there was no equal, like there was no equal to chemotherapy. You know, people, brave men, women, researchers actually went and looked at chemotherapy versus chemotherapy. And this is something we don't have today. Like I'm not saying chemotherapy should never be used, but it would be nice to have a bit more trials because they are still so regularly used in general practice. Now the background, Michael already painted most of this, so I'm not going to rehash it, but When you look at 2011, the standard of care in advanced or metastatic pancreatic cancer was single-agent gemcitabine. This has been previously compared to fluorouracil, another very common chemotherapy used with um, colorectal cancer, multiple other malignancies. And the overall survival was 5.6 months versus 4.4 months, which is still shocking. Right, Mikey? It's awful, Josh, and it's... It goes to show, you know, we, we talk about how bare the cupboard, the metaphorical cupboard is, or the weapons rack is with pancreatic cancer now. It's always worth remembering that it was worse. 
Yes, there were no magic potions to be seen. Was regarding was that the- an Alan Rickman reference? No, it probably was, but it wasn't intended. Couldn't turn to page um, three hundred and ninety-four or whatever it was. This is pretty much the the you know it's the uh, the master of the dark arts, right? That's what that's what pancreatic cancer is. Yeah, but uh, there was no defense against the dark arts beyond like just throwing I don't know throwing ice cream at it. Didn't really work. No, it did not. Going back to going back to the talk. So, Vulpirinox. It's a combination chemotherapy, including. Oxaliplatin, arenotecan, um, fluorouracil. There had been some early stage data, and essentially they knew what well, they knew. Arenotecan, this drug had preclinical data against Volferinox, but it had never been tested in humans. They had oxaliplatin that had activity when combined with fluorouracil, and they knew that oxaliplatin and arenotecan had a synergistic effect in vitro, right? So some they'd been used in other cancers, but actual use in pancreatic cancer wasn't mainstream at this point. The methods... This was, I think it's a French study, actually. It was multi-center, randomized, one-to-one, so for Furinox versus gemcitabine. Gemcitabine was given weekly as a dosage and then was then changed to day 1, 8, 15 with a week off, which is pretty common with standard regimens now. And then you've got Furinox, which was given every two weeks. Inclusion criteria, as you'd expect, metastatic cancer over the age of 18, good performance status, no previous treatment and exclusion criteria, which is, I think we need to highlight, is people over the age of 76. Now, over the age of 76 should never preclude you from chemotherapy, but you do have to have some strong conversations that this stuff is toxic. And while people can manage it and some manage it really well, if you're over 76, it's likely you're going to have some problems. The primary, so this was a phase two slash phase three study. Um, The primary efficacy endpoint for the phase two component was tumor response, and the secondary endpoint was efficacy. The phase three trial, the primary endpoint was overall survival, and the secondary endpoint was progression-free survival, tumor response, safety, quality of life, all really, really important things. Patients were recruited between December of 05 and October of 09. There was a total of 342 patients that were included and entered into this study. With the breakdown of patients, so demographics, primarily people with about 60, the oldest was 76, uh, predominance towards female, and predominance towards an ECOG performance status of one. Remember, this cancer is aggressive, and having very robust patients early on with metastatic pancreatic cancer isn't that common. When we look at the breakdown, a lot of patients had liver metastases, um, lymph node involvement. So about 87% had liver mets in both arms. Um, metastatic sites within the pancreas was about 50% and lung was about 20% as well. Predominantly, it was the head of the, the pancreas that was affected. And just from an anatomical perspective, obst- big, large, obstructing head of pancreas tumor can cause lots of problems like biliary obstruction, ascending cholangitis, you know, um, hyperbilirubinemia, confusion, falls, you know, you name it, there's issues there. So median number of treatments was 10. Not a lot, Michael. So 10 cycles means they were on treatment for 20 weeks. And the maximum was 47 weeks in the fulfirinox arm and about six in the gemcitabine arm. 
With regards to confirmed response rate, not huge, only about 31% in the Forferinox, but this is triple what we saw in the gemcitabine, which is only 11%. So that's 11 versus 33% when you saw a uh, confirmed response rate. So better outcomes, right? If we look at a complete response, you had one person, one person in the Forferinox arm that had a complete response. You had about 30% that had a partial response versus less than 10 in the gemcitabine. And stable disease was another 38% versus 41% in the gemcitabine arm being the latter. The rate of objective response, there were, it was only 30%. And, but disease control, you saw in about 70% of patients in the Volferinox and 50 or to 51% in the gemcitabine arm. Median duration of response was 5.9 versus 3.9 months. So definitely more in the Volferinox arm. And if you look at the median overall survival, this is the one fact you need to remember for Furanox. The median overall survival was 11.1 months compared with 6.8 months of single agent gemcitabine. With a hazard ratio of 0.57, there was statistically significant. The follow-up for these patients was 26 months. So just to re-emphasize, 11.1 versus 6.8, that's pretty much double. Not completely double, but getting close enough to double. Adverse prognostic factors, oh, I think anyone could probably get this low albumin level, they're probably deconditioned, you know, hepatic metastases over the age of 65, um, synchronous other metastases as well. Progression-free survival was 6.4 versus 3.3 months, again, almost double. Um, so that's much better. And if you look at the forest plot, everything is shifted towards the left, which is in favor of the Folferinox arm. Toxicity is the the study did highlight that there are more toxicities, which is expected. You know, you're not going to get less toxicities in this trial. Um, and I haven't put it, of course, I haven't copied it across, but there's, there's definitely more toxicities. And what we see in common practice, and Michael, you might want to add on, we're going to get diarrhea, um, potentially constipation, nausea, fatigue is a huge one in these patients, neutropenia as well might be a common thing that you see. Um, mucositis in the mouth, it might be something you also see. Arrhenia tea can cause some hair, um, not loss as such, but you get some thinning of the hair. Michael, anything else you would like to mention from a Volferinox toxicity perspective? Well, oxaliplatin can also contribute to alopecia. It's not the full taxol-related you know, full baldness that you see in breast cancer patients, but people will notice that their hair can come out in clumps or mm. thin out, that sort of thing. I guess the main thing, and you mentioned it just before, Josh, about the difficulty of having patients with adequate like hepatic function, and, and, and this is something that we'll probably talk about after, after we've discussed both studies, but having people with adequate hepatic function with metastatic pancreatic cancer is really hard and for your study with the irinotecan and for the study that i'm going to talk about with the uh, nab paclitaxel it is very very important to monitor the lfts very closely because you can get significant toxicity with even slight derangements in the lft which is part of the natural history of pancreatic cancer so that is in terms of toxicity um, that is something that our listeners should take note of, as I'm sure many of them already know, because it's one of the most difficult balancing acts, in my experience at least, of uh, 
of treating pancreatic cancer is that balance between a biochemical derangement that is almost certainly going to be part of the disease and then balancing that with giving a treatment that is going to be made worse by the derangement of the liver function. So you just end up in this perpetual cycle of minimizing toxicity, but trying not to can treatment entirely. That's it. It's in this setting, it is all about quality of life. And speaking of quality of life, they did some surveys and there was no significant difference between single agent gemcitabine versus multi-agent fulfirinox. So, which is which is good, and it's probably better now because for, this was one of the first, at least to my knowledge, one of the first uh, instances in which a triplet agent with five FU, irinotecan, and a platinum was used uh, in the metastatic setting, and we've gotten a lot better at managing toxicities because we have more clinical experience because we're using it more in the decade or so since this was published. So it's good that even at the outset, there was no significant quality of life uh, differences. Well, that's it, right? And that's what it always comes down to because as I highlighted, you know, overall survival with this, which is one of the strongest, strongest chemotherapies we have is 11 months. Um, Mikey, did you have any questions about this study? Uh, Just for the purposes of comparison, really, what did you say the... Uh, so overall, median overall survival of the control group was? Uh, I think it was 6.3 months. But if I have a look, so I do not lie to our listeners, it was 6.8. So it was 11.1 versus 6.8 months. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, I think that Folfirinox is a very important treatment and one that in Australia, at least, I don't know about you, Josh, but because of quirks with the PBS, which we'll come to in a minute, uh, is not as frequently used outside of the adjuvant setting. Have you seen a lot of fulfurinox used? Yeah, a fair bit. Setting? Actually, a fair, fair bit. bit. Have you seen it used in the first line? Yes. Generally, most of my specialists I'd work with, if they're well enough, will get fulfurinox. If they're not well enough, they'll get gemnapaclitaxel. Or if they're really worried or we're having the conversations, they'll get single-agent gemcitabine. Hmm. That's interesting. And not to dangle a carrot in front of our listeners, but the reason for my line of questioning will come become relevant in a moment. I'm looking forward to it. So, I'll... Go, get on to my study now, Josh, because Fulfirinox is one side of the coin. As you mentioned uh, very briefly just before, it's one of the main options when you're confronted with a patient who has newly diagnosed locally advanced or metastatic pancreatic cancer. But there is another side to the coin, another option. It's sort of option 1A, I guess, to Fulfirinox's option 1. And as Josh said, depending on the center that you're at, which treatment you reach for first will vary. But the treatment that is the other side of the coin, the other option is, as Josh mentioned very briefly, gemcitabine plus NAB paclitaxel, so albumin-bound paclitaxel, uh, which is basically exactly what it says on the tin. It's paclitaxel, which is a very commonly used chemotherapy, uh, bound to a globule of albumin, which is used as a delivery vector that increases the intratumor concentration of the paclitaxel. 
so the study that I'm going to talk about is the impact uh, that uh, looked at the addition of NAB paclitaxel. And to avoid dating this podcast, I'm going to avoid as much as I can using the brand name, which is a Braxane, because you never know, Josh, this podcast might be dug up by an uh, a civilization hundreds of years in the past, and they won't know what a Braxane is, but they'll know what NAB paclitaxel is. Do you um, mean in the future, Michael, or in the past? I meant, I meant in the future. I meant in the future. Yeah. Uh, one one thing you do need to mention with this podcast is NAB paclitaxel is still under patent. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So it's still commonly called a Braxane, but uh, that's because it is under patent. I actually don't know when the patent is going to expire. But uh, it is still very much commonly called Gemabraxane because that rolls off the well, tongue very nicely. This is the reason I was listening to you talk, Michael. I wanted to know exactly when it came off patent <laughs> so I could use it cheaply. And here we are. And that's not the answer. I'm getting it's, it's not. It's not the answer. I don't. I, I, the short answer is I don't know. But uh, so you've got gemcitabine, which prior to impact and prior to accord was the standard first-line therapy for patients with unresectable pancreatic cancer. And Josh mentioned that the survival rates were fairly abysmal. The figures quoted in the impact studies that the five-year survival was 2% with gemcitabine, and the one-year survival was a little less than 23%. They might be uh, slightly um, higher than one would expect, especially given uh, the figures that uh, are associated with gem and that paclitaxel. So... The IMPACT study was an international open-label open randomized phase 3 trial that randomized patients in a one-to-one ratio to receive gemcitabine or gemcitabine plus NAB paclitaxel. And the treatment continued until progressive disease or unacceptable toxicity. Patients had to be greater than or equal to 18 years old, as is standard, with a Karnofsky performance status score of 70 or more. They had to have unresectable or metastatic adenocarcinoma of the pancreas, who had not had treatment in the metastatic or unresectable setting. So they could have had treatment with either 5-FU or gemcitabine as part of adjuvant chemoradiotherapy as as radiosensitizers, which is not something that I see very much uh, these days, Josh. No, especially not in the metastatic setting. No, or or even in in the adjuvant setting, my, my... uh, experience, and this might be due to the use of fulfirinox in the neoadjuvant setting, as we mentioned before, but uh, I haven't seen chemoradiotherapy used very much, uh, even after a Whipple's. I've seen it a couple of times with one patient was it were involved sort of margins where they used radiosensitization with potential chemotherapy or single agent capecitabine. This was an older patient, but it's still not commonly used. No, I think if you do have positive margins uh, and it's practical, uh, the surgeons would prefer to try a re-excision to scoop out the last remaining thing or giving adjuvant uh, chemotherapy by itself, um, which I've seen a couple of times. Anyway, uh, patients uh, enrolled in IMPACT had to have uh, bilirubin at or below the upper limit of normal, which is what we were mentioning before, abraxane, there I go, Nabpaclitaxel is one of those medications that really does not play well with any uh, degree of liver derangement with hyperbilirubinemia, which almost inevitably 
means that the patient and the oncologist is stuck between a rock and a hard place and some decisions have to be made about whether to give it and risk high toxicity or whether to withhold it. And it is obviously, practically speaking, a exclusion criteria for a lot of patients at diagnosis who present with elevated bilirubin. And we might talk about ways to get around that uh, afterwards. Patients were stratified by performance status, the presence or absence of liver metastasis, as well as their geographic region. Most of the patients enrolled in the study were from North America. The endpoints were overall survival uh, as the primary endpoint, and the secondary endpoints were progression-free survival, response rate, and safety. In terms of the demographics, the median age was 62. The majority, around the high 50s to 60% of uh, both groups, were male, which... uh, fits the male slight male predominance uh, in in the uh, general population. 85% of patients in both groups had liver metastases. Uh, 35% in the uh, gem nab paclitaxel group compared to 43% in the gem cytobine alone group had lung metastases. And uh, 19% in the treatment arm and 16% in the control arm had previous biliary stents, a small number of patients that had previous Whipples and then recurrent disease. So in terms of results, very, very grim reading and potentially grimmer than uh, Josh's Volferinox study because the overall survival was 8.5 months in the gem napaclitaxel group versus 6.7 months in the gem cytobine alone group. So we always say you can't compare trials because there's far too many factors with different populations of hundreds of people that can influence the, uh, the result. But, you know, numerically... And, you know, we say you can't compare trials and then we go and do it. But numerically, gem nabpaclitaxel didn't do as well as fulfirinox. The one-year survival rate was 35% versus 22% in the gem cytopene alone group. The two-year survival was 9% versus 4%. So still really, really abysmal outcomes, but better than single-agent gem cytopene. In terms of progression-free survival... Uh, gemcitabine nabpaclitaxel achieved a PFS of 5.5 months versus 3.7 months uh, in the gemcitabine alone group with a 12-month progression-free survival of 16 versus 9% respectively. And I will make a quick note, I think I've made this before in a previous podcast, of the deceptive nature of hazard ratio. So the hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.72, and the hazard ratio for progression-free survival was 0.69. And if you just look at the hazard ratio, you'll say, hey, that's great, you know, that there's a uh, 31% reduction in the risk of disease progression or death with uh, gemcitabine plus napaclitaxel. But if you actually look at the numbers, the actual numbers are relatively small. So it is important to remember that hazard ratios are exactly that. They're a ratio. And if you've got two fairly uh, uninspiring sets of results, the hazard ratio can still look very good. In terms of the overall response rate, again, higher in the gemnab paclitaxel group, 23 versus 7%, and the disease control rate was 48 versus 33%.
In terms of the subgroup analysis, it all it uh, was consistent across almost all subgroups, but the patients that appeared to benefit less were those with liver mets with a hazard ratio of 0.86 and those who were greater than 65 years old with a hazard ratio of 0.81. And I think the reasons for that are probably fairly self-explanatory. If you've got liver mets, you're more likely to have more advanced disease uh, at diagnosis, you're less likely to tolerate the treatment, and you're more likely to therefore progress faster because there's less holding it back. And patients who are older than 65, obviously more frail, stereotypically, and less likely to do well with treatment. In terms of safety, gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel was fairly well tolerated. The most common side effects were fatigue, alopecia, and nausea, with the most common grade 3 to 4 adverse effects being neutropenia in 38%, leukopenia in 31%, fatigue, and peripheral neuropathy. So in summary, um, gemcitabine plus nabpaclitaxel was better than gemcitabine alone. The benefit is small, but I guess in a clinical context, this, the benefit is likely still meaningful. So there's this uh, concept of statistical significance with p-values versus clinical significance. And I think given the paucity of other options in the pancreatic cancer space, this is probably still a clinically meaningful benefit. Um, and as we mentioned at the at the top of the episode, there's still very few other options. And I think I'll throw this out to general discussion, Josh, is that the comparison between gemabraxane and fulfirinox, because I think it's a comparison that is still up for debate in some uh, quarters of the oncology world. There are some questions that still remain unanswered, and I don't think we're going to see a head-to-head trial until the drug company can no longer singularly benefit from uh, NAB paclitaxel, or, uh, and that that's the first point. The second point is, yes, Forfirinox on paper does do better, but yes, it also has a high toxicity rate. But given that the average age is 61 for your trial, my trial, and the patients involved, if they're any semblance of a good 61, they're going to want more time. Yeah, absolutely. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, would have, like a head-to-head trial would be lovely, but we're not going to get that. But the other thing is like, if it's if three and five months means something significant to them, as Michael very uh, pertinently put it, that's the difference between attending your kid's wedding and not. Definitely. I think that what I was always taught with these two regimens is that they are largely comparable um, and there are some small or retrospective studies floating around the internet that support that. But there are there there is a little bit of benefit or a little bit of evidence that fulfirinox is better than gemabraxane or gemnapaclitaxel, which is sort of borne out in a numerical comparison of the two trials. But I guess for our Australian listeners, the reason that gemnapaclitaxel is used very commonly in in the centre that I work at the moment, it is definitely the first-line therapy for appropriate patients, is related to a quirk with our pharmaceutical benefit scheme, our subsidised governmental medication access scheme, which is that a Braxane 
and I'll use the uh, brand name very deliberately there, is only subsidised. It's very expensive still, as Josh mentioned. It's still on patent, but it's quite complicated to make as well. But it is only subsidised and only approved for treatment of pancreatic cancer in the first-line setting. So if a patient has had fulfirinox in the first-line setting, as would be very reasonable to do based off the evidence, you can't then go to the PBS and say, hey, I'd like some abraxane, please, because they'll say, no, this patient has previously had treatment with fulfirinox in the metastatic setting, and so no, you can't have it. So this is, I think, in Australia where the debate comes. Some people will point to the ACCORD trial and say this is this is better, and it's fairly well tolerated, although there is some toxicity, but you don't have as much... Uh, leeriness of derangement in the in the liver function tests as you do with a Braxane. But the flip side of that is that a Braxane with gemcitabine is still probably a, a fairly good treatment, but if you don't use it first, you're never going to be able to use it again. So you might be able to sequence a Braxane with gemcitabine, and then when they progress, if they can still take it, Fulfirinox, or I've commonly seen Fulfox, which is fulfirinox without the urinotecane used. So there's a little bit of gamesmanship, I guess, in Australia. My counter-argument to this, and I think this threads beyond Australian borders and it'd be for any oncologist treating anywhere else, is how many patients do you honestly have who complete their fulfirinox and then are well enough to go on a secondary chemotherapy? And at that point, would it not be better for them to just go on a trial? That's what I would normally do, being like, is there an equivalent trial with immunotherapy, targeted therapy, combination with chemo, and to say, this is realistically your next best bet. Which is a very, very fair argument to make, and I'm definitely not sort of throwing my meagre weight behind one side or the other, but it, it is it is a bit of a debate, but I think that it would be very reasonable to have Fulfirinox and then a trial, uh, and then maybe... Gemabraxane in the background, but um, yeah, I, I guess it just sort of depends on on where you stand or what your clinical experience is with these two regimens, because there there's probably not a lot of not enough difference for us to definitively say yes, one needs to be the standard of care first line. And you're right, you're really right with that. I just think I've had a couple of patients who've managed to come off Fulfirinox and be well enough, but they are, you know, they're, they're a handful. And the thing with this whole situation is I would honestly start molecularly testing them when they see me. Because that, in Australia, we call most testing, or depending which, uh, whichever sort of place you work, they do a whole sequencing of the genome or the pancreatic cancer. They look for any targetable mutations, and then you can direct them towards a therapy. So the average Fulfirinox usage, I think I said it was, it was 10. That is perfect timing. That's 20 weeks, so you literally potentially will have a trial that you can start working them up towards before they progress on their chemotherapy. I just feel that we don't have enough treatment options. We don't have enough potions or you know defense against the dark arts students in this case to really not throw the kitchen sink at our patients. When they're 76, I totally get it. Or if they're 
unwell or they, they've had you know a Whipple's procedure and they've recurred three months later. Because the other question you have to remember is that I think with the with our PBS subsidizing, is that only in the metastatic setting? So if someone's had you know adjuvant volfirinox of the progress, I'm assuming you can then move on to nabpaclitaxel. You can, yeah. So um, and and that is a very important, I guess, tenant of oncology that you've touched on there, Josh. Is that if someone has gone through fulfirinox in the neoadjuvant setting, and then they progress in a short period of time, one month, three months, you know, that 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 sort of range, then hitting them again with fulfirinox is less likely to work because the cancer has proved that it's not going to be stopped by it. And so that might be another um, situation where you reach for the uh, napaclitaxel, which is something that can be applied to pretty much any cancer, really. 100%. But it's an interesting field, and in the future we will be doing some more talks about some of the up-and-coming treatment options when it comes to pancreatic cancer. There's not a huge number of them, but I think the, the push globally... Um, and at least in Australia, is that we need to start focusing on a lot of these upper GI cancers more. Yeah, definitely. I will ask one last question before I let you take us out, Josh, is that are you routinely doing whole genome sequencing on your pancreatic cancer patients? Because it's not something that I have been routinely doing in practice, uh, I suspect, as a result of access to it. But... um, it is recommended by the um, American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, in their guidelines to do whole genome sequencing or some form of genetic testing upfront in all patients, which was interesting because I've only really reached for BRCA testing, which is the main one, obviously, uh, if there's evidence of familial clustering. Patient has a strong family history of uh, pancreatic or other BRCA-associated malignancies. That's not something that I do routinely. Is that something that you're doing? I'm very lucky where I work. We are attached to quite a high-output translational research facility known as the Garvin here in Australia. Um, And so we get very readily access to referring these patients. And I usually they like it when you're on last line, but I prefer to... We have been referring much earlier because we know that it potentially gives you some options. As an anecdotal, I guess, discussion point, one of the patients we were looking after had metastatic melanoma, had didn't have the BRAF mutation we needed for um, Encobini, um, but we've gone and done you know a panel testing, looking at all these very weird and wonderful mutations and we found one and because of that this patient actually might have a response to these drugs where previously wouldn't have had access to so i think the summary of this talk michael um, and i might just take us out uh, please do that, <laughs> thank you is that this podcast is amazing you should definitely subscribe um, and nice. like us on twitter <laughs> nice yes twitter at inquisitive onk i love it yeah, there's all, we've also got a LinkedIn page that I'm building at the moment uh, for technologically challenged us. But the summary is this, is that further research is needed for pancreatic cancer. There is some great stuff coming out, so I'm excited for that. But if you have the option to do some form of like really significant testing looking for potential markers, I would, especially if they're young and you think they're going to 
even if they're not going to going to do well, it's good to kind of just have that information because you can talk to these people that we might have an option. And if at that point the option is no longer valid because they're too unwell, at least you've thought one step ahead. Because if you get to that point where they progress and then you have to wait another couple of months for the results, and maybe I'm assuming the US probably has much faster throughput of kind of all of this analysis and we're a little bit slower. But... I would highly recommend doing it early rather than later. That's a really good summary. And hopefully this is one of the areas of oncology that sees an explosion much like uh, many other tumor streams have. That's it. And um, on our next episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, uh, Dr. Michael Fernando and Josh will be talking about gastric cancer and early gastric cancer with the FOT4 trial and the potentially the Petrarca trial as well with our early HER2 positive gastric cancer. So quite interesting stuff. Again, another bit of a niche area, more of a not as fun outlook, but there are some interesting developments in this area. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a week's time and we can't wait to share this with you. Can't wait to share it with the audience and to share it with you, Josh. Yep, like, subscribe, etc. <laughs> etc. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye.